Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 113 of the Odd Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today, Dave? I'm doing well, Jeff. I am eager to get into this subject. You are? Yes, I am. I think you, now, you've been on the road a little I've bit. I've been traveling. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. A couple of weeks worth. I've uh, been wandering around. I was down in the Florida area. I was off on the, not quite the East Coast, but the Philadelphia area doing some church work. Been a lot of different places, and it's time to get back to, you know, the bread and butter here, which is the classics. So you are chomping at this bit. I am chomping. That's All right. right. Excellent. So How about you, Jeff? How I'm, are you feeling? I'm feeling. I'm feeling good. I'm on the on the cusp of a little break at mm-hmm. my institution. That always feels good. Although I have a pile of midterms um, looming over me. Yes. Um, so that can, spring break's coming up, though. Spring right? break. Yes. Ne- next week. Next week for, for us. Um, so I'm going to lay low. I'm going to hopefully get some reading done. Maybe right. Get, get some get some music stuff done. So I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Maybe hit the gym a little bit. Oh, of course. Right. right. I'm not going to let up there. No, no. The no. Murf- What's the Murphy's Law? The amount of time you have to grade is exactly matched to the amount of material that you have to grade. <laughs> right. Does this happen to you? <laughs> yes, exactly. I've got this stack of papers and I think, oh, that's two and a half hours of work maybe. Right. 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 And there's 10 hours in my day. I'm going to have seven and a half hours to read and do other things oh, yes but no, no no the grading always stretches out to exactly match the amount of time exactly and kind of robs you of all the fun yeah. stuff that you wanted to do yes right? that's or, how it goes the only downside in the job yeah yeah true i agree yeah mm-hmm. uh, so we're back in we're getting back into the aeneid today. right we're in, we're in book 10 yes so we're uh, kind of the end is in sight the end is in sight right. there's a lot of but there's a lot of good and gory stuff to go oh yeah yeah yes we got books 10 uh, book 11, we got some famous deaths coming up. And then in book 12, the potentially anticlimactic finish. I'm really looking forward to look, talking about the, yes. the, the very strange ending. Of That's the right. Yeah. And I think that um, with all due modesty, we can probably solve the problem of the tangled ending. We can cut that Gordian knot as no scholars heretofore have been able to. No, it'll take us a couple of minutes. I would think a couple of minutes. We'll yeah. have another seven and a half hours left to <laughs> do other kinds of recreation. That's right. But before we do that... Yes, the big news. Um, the big news? Yeah, what, we what, got this shout out. Oh, we're talking, the shout, this, this wonderful shout out. I am ecstatic. Yeah, why don't you lead us into this? Dave? I would love to. So this is from a young lady named, uh, I assume she's a young lady, but uh, Jasmine Hall who is a first-year student at Liverpool a University in uh, the UK. And uh, this just came to us out of the blue. Now, the, the astute listener will know that many of the shout-outs are from former students, acquaintances, distant friends. Not all of them. You know, many are new friends. And we love those. We love those. Yeah. I'm not at all, you know, poo-pooing them. Uh, but this one, totally brand new. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's what she says. And I'm going to have to try to keep back the tears as I read this. Because it's... <laughs> It's really moving. Dear David and Jeff, I am writing in heartfelt thanks for your coverage of the Aeneid. She had me right there at heartfelt. Oh, yes. These are the only episodes of your wonderful and informative podcast I have listened to so far. I don't don't like that part. Well, but the surprising part, Jeff, is (laughs) I'm not 100% sure that this is our best work, Uh, the Aeneid. I mean, it's good. I would say it's good, right? But, I mean, some of the more popular episodes, you know, they're a year old or so now. And uh, but she likes these. She likes these. Yeah. And I have no doubt that she's going to go back and listen to some. some I hope right. so. Okay. Yeah. Right. Carry on. Or else I'll have to, you know, revoke all these nice things. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking and saying. But rest assured, says Jasmine. I, in, I intend to start the show from the beginning to listen to the others. I only have one episode left. The latest one. Turn us loose. All right. I am currently studying the Aeneid in a classics module as part of my double major, English Lit and Philosophy. The podcast has been a joy to listen to as I read alongside with my own copy of the Lombardo translation, which I bought after listening to several episodes of Ad Nauseam, where your readings of his work were enough to convince me to buy it. Fantastic. Are you listening, Hackett? (laughs) My only sadness is that you're not going to cover all 12 books of the Aeneid before I complete my semester of studying the text. 
So it must be she's keeping track of our pace. Yeah. And she knows we're not going to get to book 12 until 2025. <laughs> Probably right. Yeah. But to continue, she says, but you will continue to have an avid listener in me. Excellent. So nice. Really you want to continue on that? Sure. She, she, uh, Jasmine uh, goes on. I have a question I would like to ask if you would be so kind. My chosen assignment is a question discussing the range and variety of parental love as depicted in the text. That's already very interesting. It is. What are your thoughts on this topic? I already have an essay plan, of course, focusing on the relationship Aeneas has with each of his parents, his son and the other parental love shown shown such as Lavinia's parents and how that type of love intersects with the character's sense of duty and their own personal desires. For example, Venus's hot and cold relationship with Aeneas how she wants to help him fulfill his destiny, but doesn't provide the everyday support he gets from Anchises. This this is brilliant, this isn't it? It really this is, is. Very good questions. This young woman is asking. Yes, and I love the the analogy she makes here. Um, she, in my opinion, Venus is like the divorced parent who tries to buy Aeneas's affection with big showy gifts, but isn't there to give emotional support when he's had a bad day at school. And I I think that that's dead on. That isn't is it? dead on. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, all kinds of things you know, at play there. The um, the the nature of the paterfamilias, the role of the father in, right. a, in a Roman family. Right. He's uh, supposed to be both the the model and exemplar. Right. And the provider. Yeah. But he is in in Kaisi's case, I would say he's only the model and exemplar. Right. Mm-hmm. The only thing he provides is um, advice, very crucial advice received in dreams and other sorts of things. Uh, but it, it is Venus who emotionally distant. Uh, nevertheless, provides the real material that Aeneas needs to complete his quest. Venus so she, provides this, the real. What material. did I say? Is that what is that what you said? That's what I meant to say. Okay, yeah, Venus. Yeah, right. yeah. Venus provides what Aeneas really needs, but she's distant. Right? right. You can't have affection for her. No, 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 no. So, um, I mean, we can certainly. I would love to talk more about this as we could get right. into these last episodes. You mm-hmm. know, comparing. Um, you know, Venus's relationship to Aeneas uh, with Athena's relationship to Odysseus. Right. Um, and, and how those play out. Or the relationship between uh, Aeneas and his father and Odysseus and his and his father. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, I, it struck me as, is in terms of like, uh, like gender stereotypes, mm-hmm. is that you would think perhaps that Aeneas's relationship with his mother would be more warm, be Correct. more emotional, and the father would be more kind of logical disciplinarian a right. little bit removed in but in some ways it's quite the opposite like a roman father generally is portrayed right yes. someone who's stern like the famous roman general his name escapes me i can look it up but who insisted on um uh subjecting his son to the same sort of punishment as every other soldier because his son gave the command to attack mm. before it was time yeah now he gave the command and the roman army won the engagement and nevertheless the disobedient son was put to death because that was the punishment. Yeah. Right. So that's how a stern Roman father behaves. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're right. Uh, Anchises is more emotionally supportive than your typical Roman father, uh, and Venus provides, even though she's distant. She's distant, and it doesn't. And, and certainly, I mean, she's shown up a, a couple of times. Right. Uh, you know, in uh, in person to Aeneas in, in through through ten books, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, uh, Athena's almost constant presence with Penelope, Telemachus, and Odysseus That's throughout, right. throughout the Odyssey. So. In fact, it's interesting, that, and we'll see that in this book, the only time we see emotion from Venus is when she's pleading with her own father. Right. Right? Right. She doesn't display any kind of tenderness towards her son, Aeneas, so it seems as though it is entirely an act in order to manipulate uh, Jupiter into doing something. Right, exactly. And, and what is the, what's the end game? It doesn't seem so much about her feelings for Aeneas. It's more about no. her own personal honor is at Correct. stake, right? It's, she can't be upstaged by Juno. Yeah. She has to succeed. So these are great questions, So Yeah, Jasmine. so Jasmine, this is a, a really rich, wonderful topic. That yes. I think gets at the heart of a lot of what's going on in the Aeneid. Very know? insightful. Then she concludes, a big shout out. Uh, this is another shout out within a shout out. Nice job. A big shout out to all my fellow students at the University of Liverpool in England and all hardworking students everywhere, no matter their field of study. That's really remarkable. Fantastic. Yeah. She says, crack those books and keep revising. (laughs) That's great advice. That is great. I almost think this is too good to be true. I mean, is this written by some... 
Is it written by a, a first-year student? Did, you know, did your mom write this? I wonder because <laughs> it's filled with. You know, had I written it myself, it couldn't have been any better. It's with great. all these kind remarks about us, and then admonition to you know keep studying hard, and these insightful comments about the Aeneid. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Have you ever been to Liverpool? I have. Have you? Yes. I. I. I, uh, I my wife, um, her aunt and uncle live in Liverpool. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, the um, you know, my wife's uncle. Uh, grew up in the neighborhood of Paul McCartney. See, that's why I want to go there because yeah. of all you know, the, the, the Beatles stuff. There. I've been to Liverpool, yep. Yeah. There's um, one of the largest cathedral, an Anglican cathedral, one of the largest in all of England. Uh, it's enormous red brick. Yeah. Is in Liverpool. And you can go and, uh, you know, queue up there at the wharf. And there was a lot of shipping that went from Liverpool to North America. Sure. And, you know, parts even further west. I think that's so. where the, actually the Titanic departed from. I think that's right. Yeah. So it's well worth seeing. Maybe. Definitely well worth seeing. Someday, someday. Yeah, and this uncle of mine, he he talks like Paul McCartney. He's got the same sort of Lilliputian, the, the, the Liverpudlian accent. Yeah, yeah, accent. It's really, really interesting. An accent which I am not going to attempt. No, no, no. We've learned our <laughs> lesson. So Jasmine says, with heartfelt thanks and kind regards, Jasmine Hall, first year student at Liverpool. Thank you, Jasmine. That was we are, awesome. We are so pleased with that. So yeah. keep up the great work. Keep up your studies. I hope your studies go very well. You've chosen. Uh, English Lit and Philosophy, you've chosen a really wise uh, course of study, I would say. Wonderful. All right, let's get into the the, uh, the topic at hand. That's right. right. Before we do that, um, do you want to say uh, something about the LLPSI before we dive into Should it? Should we place it here right near the beginning? I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. Say okay. it a little bit, Dave. Yeah, so um, if you want to study Latin, if you want to go from a little or no knowledge of Latin, go ab initio, uh, to a pretty solid knowledge, you can check out my course, which is based on the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the fabulous textbook written by the Dane, Hans Orberg. You can find this at latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI. So this course has more than 30 instructional videos where I am interacting with uh, three or four charming Latin students, um, a couple beginners, some are a little more advanced, and I take them through this Orberg textbook teaching and explaining every word, every paragraph. It also comes with a lot of listening aids, with quizzes and exams. And uh, there may be, um, you know, there, there may be better courses out there, I can't say. But just like my Greek course, in terms of value, I think that what you get for your money here, it's an excellent value. It's not that expensive. And um, the quality, I believe, is very high. Fantastic. So where, if, if they were wanted to check this out, where should they go? Yes, latinperdm.com slash L-L-P-S-I. Right. Check it out. Yes. And Jeff, I think you have our opening quote. Is yes. that right? Yes. This comes from uh, an author by the name of David Quint, who wrote this article, The Brothers of Sarpedon, Patterns of Homeric Imitation in Aeneid 10. Right. Now, uh, Mr. Quint, uh, we have quoted him before. He wrote something called Epic and Empire. Yes. Which is about the general um, genre of epic and how it plays out you know, in a political and imperial ambition. So this is, in my book, this is a, a first-rate scholar. Yes, excellent. And so this comes from a journal with a with a long Italian title, which I'm not going to, to Oh, read. we got to give it a try. Oh, Come go, on. Go for it, then. Materiali e discussioni, discussioni per l'analista dei testi classici. Thank you. Not so good. It's from, <laughs> from 2001. That's right. So what does Mr. Quint say? He writes, in the first words he speaks in the Aeneid, Aeneas imagines himself vanquished on the fields of Troy along with two other remembered Trojan heroes, Hector and Sarpedon. The Aeneid continually remembers Hector, whose death at the hands of Achilles in Iliad 22 evoked here and subsequently in Book 1 by the reliefs of the Temple of Juno in Dido's Carthage, will be reenacted in the duel between Aeneas and Turnus that closes the poem in Book 12. To a lesser extent, the Aeneid also remembers Sarpedon, particularly in the battle scenes of Book 10, though also in the surrounding books 9 and 11. As the war in Italy produces a second Iliad, it produces many versions of the Sarpedon, whom the gods of Homer's poem refuse to save from death. Virgil, in fact, meditates on the relationship that the Iliad already draws between its Aeneas and the other two Trojan heroes, between a hero twice rescued by the gods and destined to survive, and those they leave to perish on the battlefield. Interesting. Right. Interesting. So in my reading of, uh, of Book 10 over the last couple of days, uh, this really struck me okay. that there's a lot of this anxiety and um, a kind of unsettledness about the machinations of fate. Okay. We're, we're going to talk in just a moment about the, this council of the gods that opens the book, um, but that also raises questions of like, who's really in charge, mm -hmm. and you know how, how much does does Jupiter's will even mean? Right. And so um, I think there's 
it was the the hand of fate as we've seen throughout the the Aeneid. You know, Rome is destined, right? This right. is going to happen. But it struck me that Virgil, on the one hand, is celebrating that, um, and it's kind of its apex with Augustus. Um, but he's also unsettled about everything that can happen between point A and point B. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, you see that through the Greek this as well, is that when an oracle or a fate is pronounced, it has to come true. But the wiggle room is what happens between the beginning and the fulfillment of the oracle. Right. And that's where it can get really messy. Is it going to be difficult? Is it going to be smooth sailing? How many casualties are there going to be? Mm-hmm. Is the hero going to show his virtues? Is, is he going to have a moment of aristeia? His arete is going to be on display. Right. What's going to happen? Yes. So to, can I just summarize uh, the quote here a little bit to make sure we're all following? Because I want to make sure I'm understanding what uh, Mr. Quint is saying. Sure. So he's saying at the beginning of the Aeneid, Aeneas is reminiscing about Trojan heroes, mm-hmm. Hector and Sarpedon. And of course, he's in that mix too, right? They are the vanquished, those who uh, fell at Troy. So yes. Hec- Hector fell and Sarpedon fell. And Sarpedon was a son of Zeus, if, he was. if I remember. Killed by Patroclus. That's correct. He was not part of, um, he was not a Trojan per se. I think he was one of the allied persons from the hinterland. That's right. And his death is especially tragic because Zeus wants to spare him, I mm-hmm. guess, as his son. But he doesn't actually follow through on that. Hera tell, says to him, basically says, you could do that. In fact, all of us could do that. Um, but once you you kind of tug at that thread, mm. um, it's, I, in, that, when I, in my reading of that passage, Hera almost suggests that the, kind of the whole thing will unravel. Right. And so it's one of those really striking passages where we're left to wonder, okay, to what degree can the gods influence fate? Or you know, do the gods at some point, everyone has to bend the knee to fate. Right. And so, so as a counterpoint, maybe it's a little bit like the beginning of the book of Job, uh, where Satan comes to the Lord and says, you know, there's some kind of a conversation. And then the Lord says, have you seen my servant Job? Mm-hmm. You know how righteous he is. And then uh, Satan says, well, you know, he only does that because you've given him good things. Right. If, if you were to take all those things away, he'd curse he'd you. Curse you. Yes. And so the Lord gives him permission then to take those things away from Job. Yeah. So it's that it's perhaps a little bit similar in the sense of to what extent uh, does divine providence or fate have any kind of purchase in human action? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So then as the quote goes on, um, Quintus saying Hector is continually remembered throughout the epic, but um, Sarpedon is not so much. Is that right? Yes. To a lesser extent, the Aeneid also remembers Sarpedon, but really here only in book 10, uh, especially in the battle scenes of Book 10. So the idea is there are many heroes who, like Sarpedon, um, you might want them to be saved, or there's some reason, but they actually perish in the action anyway. Yeah. Is that right? Something like that. There's a, there's a, um, I, I hope we will be able to get to it today. If not, then in the next episode, there's this really striking aside in the middle of one of these battle scenes where um, Virgil mentions a, a character, I think his name is like Lycus or something, mm-hmm. and he mentions how he was born by by C-section. And he says that um, Apollo allowed you to live then, but now here you are going down on the battlefield. So why did, why did the gods spare you then and not now? Right. And it's this, it's this direct question that Virgil is, is kind of speaking aloud. Mm -hmm. And so I see that, that same kind of, well, you know, why did, why did Zeus not save Sarpedon? Right. Um, And why did he allow him to go die? Why was Aeneas wrapped in a mist and taken out of the battle? Yes. Rescued by his mother. Who gets the benefits? Correct. Yeah. Cui bono, right? For whom for whom is it a good? Exactly. Yeah, and then of course, um, if I'm remembering correctly, in the Iliad, uh, Aeneas is saved on another occasion too um, by Poseidon, yeah. who grabs him when Achilles is about to kill him and spirits him off the battlefield and actually picks him up and tosses him behind enemy lines, right? Uh, behind allied lines, I mean to say, uh, and rescues him. So why does that happen? Why does that happen? I mean, does does Aeneas have some survivor's guilt over right. that, right? Mm. And I think it's also, you know, we're getting into the thick of the Iliadic section of the Aeneid, right. but that kind of gods coming down and moving people around like chess pieces is not happening. Right. right? So we don't get that element of the of the Aeneid. We get no. we get Venus pleading her case before Jupiter, right. but she's not doing what she was doing on the battlefield as we see it in the Iliad. Yeah, there's a bit of a truce called yes. in, in terms of divine action. Right. So we're in that Iliadic part, uh, the part that um, Ovid described as the part nobody reads. <laughs> Remember what he said? What we, was that? we all read book four, uh, Aeneas in Dido's arms and throw away the rest. Right. But come on, Ovid. Yeah. You know, it's at least he's being a little bit uh, emulous there, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's trying to 
Uh, he's trying to pull readers to his own epic. Yeah, but, but there's some real truth to that as well. Of course. If, if you look at like, like, like the editions uh, of you know the essential Iliad. That's right. They cut out books 15, 16, 17, 18. What right, about right? the catalog of ships? What, what, Do they leave in book two? You got that's a, that's a snoozer. You gotta have a catalog. <laughs> <laughs> we, speaking of catalogs, we got one in this book. Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into let's it. Let's get then. into this. All right. So the book opens with the Council of the Gods, mm -hmm. and um, and Jupiter's upset. Right. And he's upset. But he's not necessarily upset at, at human beings, but he's upset at the other gods, and they're not doing what they said they were going to do. They're not playing fair. Right. And uh, this is reminiscent of Odyssey Book One. Yeah. Right. The Odyssey opens after the little proemium about the man who is Palutropos. With a council of the gods. Right. And uh, we see what they're up to on Olympus. Right. And again, in that council, Zeus is upset. Right. There he's upset. He says, look, we try to help human beings. Do they listen to us? No. We tried to warn Aegisthus. Don't don't go off with this woman. Right. Clytemnestra. Or you're going to get killed. And look what happens. And I've, I always read that as Zeus is on, he's on the verge of saying, fine. Right. Leave him alone. Yeah. Why do I bother? Why do I bother? Right. Right. And then Athena speaks up and says, okay, dad, but right. don't forget about Odysseus. Yeah. You made this promise. Yes. Yep. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities mm. in, this, in this scene. Mm. Yep. Rich. Yeah. All right. So, so we, we get, um, there's four speeches in this okay. council. So Jupiter starts, Venus responds, then Juno responds, and then Jupiter. Uh, he gets the last he, word. He gets the last word. Right. But let's have a little bit of Latin. I would love that. Okay. So this is uh, line six, book 10. Kai Likalai Magni Quianam Sententia Wobis, Versa Retro Tantum Quanamis Certatis Iniquis, Abnu Aram Belli Taliam Concurere Teucris, Quai Contra Vetitum Discordia Quis Metis Outhos. I had to pause there a minute and think about it. Athos Arma Sequi Ferrum Quella Cessera Swasset. Very nicely done. Thank you. So this uh, Lombardo translates as. Uh, again, this is Zeus berating uh, his fellow uh, deities. Says, mm. Why have you gone back on your word, divine ones, and fight amongst yourselves? I forbade Italy to go to war with Troy. This quarrel thwarts my will. What fear has caused these humans to rush to arms? Yeah. So this, to me, immediately raises the question, if Zeus will, Zeus's will can be, or Jupiter's will can be easily thwarted, yeah. what use is it? Yes. And is he really uh, omnipotent in any sense? Exactly. There's clearly not... Uh, an easy equation between Jupiter's will and fate. No, there's not. So I was going to give two possible answers. Okay. You know, we have repeatedly in this podcast when talking about questions of ethics and morals and comparing Greeks and Romans, I have repeatedly said you have to, and I'm following Werner Jaeger and others here, you have to think in terms of pre-Plato and post-Plato. Yes. Right? Everything pre-Plato, the Homeric worldview is regnant and it's fully inconsistent with itself. It's at times incoherent. Yeah. Right? Uh, Post-Plato, there's a strong monotheistic tendency, or henotheistic, and Plato is trying to bring some semblance of reason and structure to Greek and Roman theology, you might say. Right. So it could be, right, if we try to square that with what Virgil's doing here, isn't Zeus in charge? I think that the most likely explanation is that he is just jettisoning, uh, Virgil is, all of that Platonic thinking for the sake of dramatic storytelling, hmm. right? Dramatic storytelling... Uh, has to suspend belief, right? You've got to suspend belief and you have to have some incredulity. So yeah. I think that's what he's doing here. So is is Zeus really in charge? Well, I said he was a few pages ago, <laughs> you know, but now he's not because right. that makes for better storytelling. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. I, I think I one place I would mildly push back is I think that Virgil's notion of fate is yes. much more grounded and right. cemented than... Than we see it in definitely in the in the, uh, in the Iliad. Yes, and that was right. going to be the second part, right? This the second part or second explanation is there's the overarching notion of the parkai, right? Yeah. The fates and uh, the moirai, and they are the ones really in charge. Now, the the place where this gets a little bit difficult is we don't know exactly how much they have delegated to Jupiter and the other Olympians. Exactly. What's the um, you know what's the division of labor here? We thought he was in charge of forbidding war in Italy, but here it is. Yeah. Nevertheless, maybe that partly explains Jupiter's frustration. Right. Well, why don't the fates just tell me what they want me to do? <laughs> right, exactly. This is not in my job description. It does. I mean, it does seem that that Jupiter is he's powerless to a certain degree. Yeah. And, and, and who is he raging against? Yeah. Is he, is he really angry at his fellow divinities, or is he kind of raging at his own kind of uh, impotence? Yeah, I was going to right? say that. So in the Iliad and Odyssey, he's uh, presented in a very regal way sitting on this throne with his heroic torso right. and his uh, you know, ambrosial locks 
all he has to do is nod in a certain direction. Yeah. And everything happens just as he wants it. Exactly. Right? His hands are never tied. Right. But here in the Aeneid, he's kind of constantly wringing his hands. Yes. And, you know, muttering, oh, fine, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. And just to kind of bring it back to Iliad Book 18 with the Sarpedon episode, right. in that one, um, Hera suggests that um, if he wanted to and if she wanted to, they could manipulate the fates. Right. Um, but the suggestion is that you probably shouldn't. Mm-mm. In the Aeneid, it's, I think it's very clear to me that fate's going to do what fate's going to do and Jupiter can't, That's really, right. can't really steer it at all. To you, I'm glad you used the word steering there because it's reminiscent of the El Camino, right? <laughs> Do you El not Ca- remember? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, seek park I will want. This is how the uh, this is how the fates roll, right? Don't you remember we had them in this El Camino? <laughs> oh, that's right. They're that's just right. rolling around <laughs> and uh, deciding things. Yeah, in the El Camino. Right. Yeah. The, the three of them. One on the bench seat. One spins out the thread of mortal life. Yes. One pulls it out. You know, like removing a piece of floss from mm-hmm. the container. And the third one, you know, Atropos cuts it yes. with a giant pair of scissors. Uh, not to open a parade, but to end someone's life. <laughs> right, 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 right. This is what they do. And in some sense, even Jupiter is subservient to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I can really sympathize with his frustration here. Yeah. This is not in my job description, he might say. Right, right. So Venus then speaks up and she right. she pleads for uh, for Aeneas, you know, after uh, Jupiter's done raging about everybody you know, disobeying him. So Jeff, are you going to read a little bit of Venus's speech for us? Yes, uh, from the Lombardo translation. Okay. Again. So uh, we go, it goes, thus Jupiter briefly, but golden Venus made no brief reply. Father eternal, power of the universe, for what else may we appeal to now? Do you see how insolent the Rutulians are, how Turnus, swollen with pride, rides his chariot through the crowds, rushing into war with Mars at his back. The Teucrians are no longer protected by their walls. The fighting has moved inside the gates, and the trenches flow with blood. Aeneas, far away, does not know of these dangers. Will you never allow this siege to be lifted? A second army threatens the walls of an infant Troy, and again there rises from an Aetolian Arpi, a son of Tydeus. I feel I myself will be wounded again. I, your child, will stop another mortal spear. If the Trojans have sought Italy without your leave, abandon them and let them pay for their sin. But if they have followed all the oracles given by the gods above and shades below, how can anyone now subvert your will and establish destiny anew? Interesting. So whiny. Doesn't she come off as kind of impossibly petulant? I think by design, right? So she's referring to, you know, she's wounded famously in the Iliad by Diomedes. That's correct. And the the ichor, right? Yes. This translucent, gooey fluid that the gods have. Some of it uh, pours out of her wrist. Yes. You know the famous Ingress painting where she's seated in a chariot? Yeah. I'm, oh, pa- yeah. I'm pantomiming it now, right? <laughs> she's leaning back and fainted away because she got a little nick on her wrist from yes. Diomedes. And she she, run, she runs up to, to, to dad. On right. Place, right. Whines about whines it. About it. it. What, she's, what she's saying here is... We're going to have a Trojan War all over again. Mm-hmm. An infant Troy is being besieged, and maybe I'm even going to be injured. Right. you got to stop this. Ah. <laughs> she says she's worried about an, another um, another hangnail. Correct. Um, and she says nothing, no worrying about, you know, if her son is going to die. Yes. Here, right? It seems very narcissistic. Right. But I thought this line here said, but if they have followed all the oracles, they being the Trojans, Given by the gods above and shades below, how can anyone now subvert your will and establish destiny anew? Yeah, so that's that's, that's actually argu- a really good point. That's the argument of of a philosopher there, right, or a legal scholar. Yeah. Right? Basically, um, the Trojans have all along done every ritual that you have expected of them. You owe them, mm-hmm. right? This is a point you have made repeatedly in going through uh, the epic. You, you've had a little bit of fatigue almost with um, Aeneas's constant piety and performance of ritual. Yes. Right. What's what's the purpose of him doing everything right? Right. Maybe this answers that a little bit. Okay. All right. It it answers. Uh, he has to be presented as someone who is faultlessly careful mm-hmm. in religious duty because that obligates Jupiter. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll buy that. Okay. I like that. I I will complain about it less. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I I, mean, I I it it does raise this issue too. Is it's almost you know, Venus is saying, listen, if fate has pointed them in this direction all this time. Right. How can you fault them? Right. Right. Well, what's you know, what else would you expect them to do? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's mm-hmm. for all of her whininess. That's that's a fairly good point. A fairly good point. I'm glad she ended on that point because some of the other arguments are are kind of weak. 
Yeah, and then her 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 speech goes on, and she she wonders, well, well, maybe I could whisk Ascanius away. Um, the grandson. Uh, the grandson. Yes. And, and, you know, to, and kind of pamper him off on one of her islands. She's done this once before, yes. remember? This is what happens in um, book two, yes. isn't it? Or, or end of book one, when he is spirited away and Cupid, her other son, comes in in disguise for Ascanius. That's right. In order to provoke Dido to fall in love. Right. So she's done this before and now she's thinking, hey, this would be a... Try this trick again. Right. It worked many books ago. Why right. wouldn't it work now? But, you know, as we know, this is also um, right at the moment where Ascanius is expected to step up. Correct. And, you know, and fight alongside of his father. And so in terms of like personal honor, this is a terrible idea. It is, right. Yeah. This is where he's coming of age, right? Yeah. And uh, he's going to join with his father like Telemachus with Odysseus. And get some revenge. Yes. Even though his father is the suitor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everything is topsy-turvy. All right. Then Juno responds, and she's not happy about this at all. No. So why don't you give us a bit of Juno's uh, ragings here? Okay. Then regal Juno furious. Why do you force me to break my silence and tell the whole world my heart's deep sorrow? Did any man or God compel Aeneas to make war on the Latins? He sought Italy at the call of the fates. Yes, driven on by Cassandra's raving. Did I advise him to leave his camp or entrust his life to the winds, to put a, to put a boy in charge of their defenses at the height of war, to tamper with Etruscan loyalties or stir up peaceful nations to war? What god, what cruel power of mine undid Aeneas? Where is Juno in all of this or Iris sent from the clouds? It is indeed monstrous that Italians are burning your infant Troy and that Turnus has taken a stand in his native land, Turnus, a mere grandson of old Pilumnus, and whose mother is only the goddess Vanilia. Hmm? What do you think? I have more. But what about the Trojans torching the Latin people and pillaging their fields, mm -hmm. dragging a bride away from her betrothed, offering peace in one hand and arming ships with the other? You have the power to whisk Aeneas away from the Greeks and substitute empty mist for the man. You are as well perfectly capable of turning their ships into so many nymphs. And read her, her question to wrap this up. Right. But for us to help the Rutulians is disgraceful? So I I don't have a lot of I don't find Juno very sympathetic throughout this. Epic. No, she's nasty. She's nasty, but here I think she's making a lot of kind of solid kind of logical arguments. Okay, here. fair enough. But a moment ago you were on Venus's side. You were saying that's a really good point. They're that's a really good question. They're both making very good points here, right? So and you want to be Jupiter. Well, so I think that what strikes you me want is, to decide between them. Well, when Jupiter follows up, he basically says, "Hey, you know, knock it off. Let's let's call a truce." And neither of you, um, uh, you know, start manipulating. Both of you back down. Right. And he says something to the degree that you know fate will have its way. Well, mm. that's really kind of the answer to all of this. And and I think it makes all it's of his answer to everything. Isn't his, it? Because that is the answer. Mm. And I think it makes all of this squabbling just that much more ridiculous. But when you look, when you, if you remove kind of fate from the equation, when you when Juno says, "Look at what they're doing. They invade. They're they're invading uh, a territory. Right. They're breaking up an engagement. They're pillaging the fields." Um, offering peace in one hand and arming ships with the other. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, is you know saying how how is this how is this just? So this is the place where the revisionists have you know a leg to stand on, and they can say this is a commentary on the whole Roman project. Hmm. Right. This is how the Romans behave in Spain and uh. England, and how they behave in Gallia and Germania and Libya and in the East. You know, they don't play fair. Yeah. It's it's uh, might makes right everywhere. Right. And so this speech of Juno is a subtle critique on the Pax Romana. Yeah. I, I, I don't like that. Okay. But You're not persuaded. I'm not persuaded by I'm that. I'm not either, no. but I'm, I'm trying to think sympathetically of that viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a presentist uh, you know, I argument. think so. I think the, the bigger point is, um, you know, early in the quote, was she, uh, she says, um, did any man or God compel Aeneas to make war on the Latins? And then she she's quoting here. He sought Italy at the call of the fates. Yes, right. driven by driven on by Cassandra's raving. So she kind of dismisses the whole notion of kind of oracles Prophecy. and prophecies and fates. But uh, deep down, I think Juno knows that she can't mess with fate either. Yeah. And so she's making an argument that just doesn't stick because fate hmm. will do what fate's going to do. Hmm. And it makes these gods look ridiculous. Speaking of looking ridiculous, yeah. it's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee, with their offices in Portland, Oregon, the brew child of the fabulous entrepreneur Mark Helweg. Jeff, 
I th- hear you have some uh, some special reviews to share with us about yes. the uh, the Ratio 8. Yep, I found some online reviews from um, from happy Ratio customers. Shall I, shall I read a few of these? I'd love to hear these. Right. Um, one goes thusly, I've used makers from Bonavita, Oxo, Breville, and Technivorm. The Ratio 6 makes the most consistent pot of coffee I've ever made. The coffee bed is always evenly saturated and flat after brewing. Great showerhead design. It is expensive, yes, but as always, you get what you pay for. Yes. Right. Even yep. some of the language in there. This Whoever wrote this, Nick, knows maybe a little bit too much about coffee. You think a little bit too much? <laughs> right. <laughs> I hadn't heard of some of these brands before. Technivorm. No. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stick with the ratio. It's much easier to pronounce. Yeah. Indeed. Can I read the next one? Please. It says, uh, very impressed. I'm a coffee nerd. I own way too many coffee-making devices. But this is easily the best electric drip maker I've ever owned or used. So this guy's got a counter full of machines. Yes, but despite that, this guy or gal yes. doesn't realize that it is not an electric drip maker. Mm. It's an automatic pour over. That's right. And there's the difference. Yes, there you right? go. You have to allow for the off-gassing. There yes. isn't much off-gassing <laughs> with the drip. No. <laughs> no, you push the button. There's the bloom. Bloom. The brew. Brew. And then the ready. Yeah. yeah. Can you read the next one? Yes. If you know good coffee, this machine will surprise you. It makes incredible coffee. If you don't know good coffee, this machine will shock you. You'll be tasting coffee the way it is meant to taste. That's, that's quite a review that there. That is put together with a lot of panache. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to say. How about one more? You got I, that? I don't know where it is. Oh, oh here it is. <laughs> okay. This is our favorite coffee maker ever. Had it for over two years now. Never had any issues whatsoever. I can attest to that, Jeff. Yes. I have never had a moment when this machine did not work flawlessly. Same here. The review goes on. The taste of our coffee in this maker versus any other is incomparable. With the ratio, it just tastes better. I highly recommend it to anyone considering it. Customer service was easy to get a hold of, and they were able to assure me that I was using it properly when I had a question. Thank you, ratio. Again, very, very high praise. Yes, although I have to wonder a little bit. Go ahead. Um, how could you misuse it, right? There's only one button. It's so simple. You just push the one button and that's all you have to do. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it raises some issues. But okay. Let's focus on the positive. All right. Here. Let's focus right. on the positive. So listener, if you want to get one of these wonderful machines, the Ratio 6 um, or its older, slightly sleeker brother, the Ratio 8, mm-hmm. uh, Dave, what should they do? Well, I understand you're an owner of both of them. I do. I've got, got the, both the 6. i got the 6. i got the 8. And the 8. The it's eight. like a Ratio 14. It is. <laughs> exactly. I got the ratio eight and kind of the front lines right now, mm-hmm. but um, I, I used the six for many, many years. It was, they're, they're both just fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, listener, you should go please to Racial Coffee, R-A-T-I-O, RacialCoffee.com. Check out the wide selection of attainable, beautiful, aesthetically brilliant coffee makers, and then enter this code at checkout, A-N-C-O-9-Y. All right. A-N-C-O-9-Y. Yes. Y as in... Um, Yucatan? Yucatan. There There you go. I'm sure they raised some great coffee down there. Yes. 9Y. And for the month of March, you will get 15% off your order. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing now, I believe, in their 52nd year of bringing to the public uh, volumes uh, that are erudite, that are affordable, that are attractive. Um, I can't say enough about Hackett. I use their text in my classroom. I have a bunch of them on my shelves. Um, the Lombardo translation that we're using for the Aeneid is a Hackett publication. I use them in my in my myth class. Uh, Dave, what do you like about Hackett? Well, I'm at the website right now. I'm yeah. browsing around a little bit. And uh, under the section entitled New and Forthcoming, I think this is a wonderful illustration of the breadth of offerings that they have. What's coming up? Well, there's first of all Aristotle's chemistry, his work on chemistry, CDC Reeve translation. Right next to it, Seven Myths of the Russian Revolution. My goodness. Right next to that, uh, Understanding Kant's, that's the philosopher Immanuel Kant, understanding his work, The Groundwork. And next to that, The French Revolution, a document collection. Bolzano, Essay on Beauty and the Arts, Aristotle's Theology, Anselm, The Scientific Background to Modern Philosophy, and The Buddha's Teaching as Philosophy. So... The breadth is, the breadth is, is, is really impressive. Right. A so, wide range of interesting intellectual subjects. Yeah, so it's not just classics. I mean, they have a ton of offerings under that classical umbrella. But That's right. But as you just heard, it's history, it's philosophy, it's religion. Uh, um, cinema for French conversation. Wow. Now in its fifth edition. I'm still reading the third. <laughs> exactly. God, let me catch up already. Yes. So let's say you're a listener to mm-hmm. Ad Nauseam, and you'd have to be if, if you're hearing this. Yes. And you want to score some high quality yet inexpensive 
uh, textbooks and other kinds of things for your reading pleasure, what should you do? You should go to hacketpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Find the books that you want, drop them in the little satchel, and you type in the code AN2023. That's correct, because we're in a new year now. AN2023. Yep. And what does that get them? Two amazing things. 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Wow. 20% and free shipping. That's right. That's incredible. Check it out. All right, Jeff. So as we get back into this, yes. where are we headed next? Well, now with the kind of the camera zooms down from Olympus out down to the battlefield, and um, let's remind our audience kind of where we where we last were on in the, the action. Right. right. So remember, Aeneas he's still with Evander. Yep. He's down with the Arcadians, mm-hmm. and the Trojans are holed up in this this um, this fort, this makeshift seems, kind of mini Troy. It seems to fall apart like it's made of cardboard. Yes. <laughs> Didn't you do any of those things as a kid? You what? make popsicle stick forts oh, and yeah. things oh, like oh, that. Yeah, definitely. It seems like every uh, class assignment I had, I had to build Ticonderoga or something like that. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, five popsicle sticks and a bottle of glue. <laughs> exactly, right. And protect the British from the French and the Indians. I did uh, Fort Michelamackinac. Uh, I can't even say that. Mackinac. Yeah. And what did you use? What was your medium? Pop- popsicle sticks and glue. Right? That's right. That's had to eat a lot of popsicles to, <laughs> to, to get the, to yeah, get the, material, the building right. materials. Right. And Play-Doh, you can use that too for yes, exactly. filling things in. Right. So that's the kind of fort in which they're hunkered down. Yeah. And Turnus is raging around in the vicinity, mm-hmm. right? And his other Rutulians. Yes. So that's kind of the... the okay. And things are getting desperate for the Trojans. That's the mise-en-scene, right. you might say. Well, I thought it was... It struck me as funny. I'm sure it's not supposed to be funny. Okay. Is that Virgil kind of pauses lingeringly on this description of Ascanius. Okay. That uh, kind of remind me of a kind of a, a slow-mo shampoo commercial. Okay. You know, where the where the woman is kind of showing up the body and bounce of her hair. Is there any oat milk involved? Oh, there's, of course there's oat milk. There's heavy oat milk involved. Garnier fructus. Right. So he pauses in the middle of this kind of desperate situation to, to, to say this, again, Lombardo. In their midst, the Dardanian boy himself, Venus's most rightful care. His glorious head unhelmeted, glittered like a jewel, set in yellow gold to adorn neck or brow, or as ivory gleams inlaid in boxwood, or Ocrian ebony, hair streaming over his milk-white neck encircled in gold. Now, now maybe... <laughs> That's maybe, a little much, maybe? <laughs> maybe Virgil was bald. <laughs> He's just got envy, yeah. thinking about his lost youth. Yeah, that never, that never hits you, you know? I can just imagine Virgil, you know, he's talking to Mycenaeus or Horace. And, Virgil, what's happened to you, right? Yeah. Well, somewhere along book seven, all my hair fell out, right? Yeah. You remember how I used to have these, uh, these long... very luscious locks that just cascaded? <laughs> Maybe Virgil's in some nostalgia there. Right. Yes. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, who is also... Yes, a favorite of yours. Yes, um, suffers from alopecia, as do I. Oh, so that's what it's called? Hair uh, loss. Oh, right? I didn't know that. And um, he talks about, you know being younger and having, you know, lustrous locks. And right. he, says, he, goes, he goes, I was muy guapo. I was Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just, this, this just struck Speaking me. Speaking of questionable ethnic uh, comparisons, <laughs> go for it. So I just thought this is um, this kind of this pause in, okay. the, in the battle to kind of have you know, Ascanius with his helmet up, kind of swinging down. his blonde locks along, just, right. struck, just struck me as, okay. uh, as unintentionally funny. And right. you compared it to a movie, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I recently showed in my film class the, the great Eddie Murphy uh, movie, Coming to America. We were just mm-hmm. talking about Eddie Murphy before the, before the show. This with Arsenio Hall. Yes, right. right. I, 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 fantastic movie. Very, very funny. But there's this recurring gag where um, one of the love interests, um, one of the villains is um, a purveyor of soul glow. Okay. A, you know, kind of a, a ridiculous... It's a hair product. Hair product for, for African-American okay. men, women. And it's, it's it's just played to be ridiculous. But there's lots of these gauzy, filtered, slow-mo images of of this, of this um, of men with long locks kind of swinging them around. And I so see. when I read that about Ascanius... I, it took I, you right there. It was a soul glow act. Okay. <laughs> right. I think we should probably leave this behind, maybe. Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> Moving along. Okay. So Aeneas finally, finally... Returns by ship at midnight. Yes. He has come back from the regions of Arcadia, mm-hmm. but he's not alone. Right. So who's with him? He's got Tarkon, which is a great name, isn't that it? That is a good name. He's got Tarkon, who is an Etruscan king. And Tarkon is, he's all on board for some reason with Aeneas. Mm. Um, it strikes me, it happens a little quickly. I mean, Well, what I want to know is how come people don't name their kids this? What, Tarkon? I don't know if you know, in the you've got one of these, I think. But in the last um, 10, 15 years, there's a lot of um, boys' names that end in on of some sort, like... Logan, Mason, hmm. Brandon, Ethan, yeah. e- Ian. 
Yes. There's a lot of those. Why why not Tarkin? Tarkin. Wouldn't that fit right in? Yeah, I'd like I, I would like I'd like that. I'd like to meet a Tarkin. I would like to as well. All right. So he's there with all of his ships and his allies, and he's all on board with helping um uh, helping Aeneas. He probably has some kind of previous axe so to grind. So to speak, he's all on board. He's like, oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. I didn't even intend that. Puns. So he probably has some previous axe to grind with Turnus and the Rutulians. Right. So he's a chance. Okay, that can I can um, um you know take some revenge or whatever. Get my he, pound of flesh. Whatever he wants to do. Um, but uh, and then we also learned that right by Aeneas's side on his ship is Pallas. Yes, this is the son of Evander. All right. And the flower of his youth, yes. right, has been entrusted to Aeneas for safekeeping. He needs to get some experience in battle. He wants to see what's happening at the front line, so to speak. And Aeneas has taken on this young man, Pallas, as his charge, yeah. right? And uh, he's going to protect him, defend him, while he gets some experience in the affairs of men. Yes, and this uh, this figure becomes very important for right. understanding the end of the epic. And so, without mm-hmm. I don't want to give too much away, but I do have I have some problems with Pallas. Okay, and a uh, long list of grievances. You, a long list. We don't have time for them all. Um, but he clearly, in, with a, in a Homeric comparisons, he's our Patroclus. Okay, right. And um, what things that bothers me is I, I in my readings of the Aeneid, I've never felt like. You know, why should I care so much about this kid? Mm. It, the, the, there's not enough background. There's not enough kind of build up to him to to kind of explain why uh, Aeneas in particular responds so emotionally to mm. him. Um, do you, I mean, do you... Do I have a th- any thoughts on that? Do this? you have any thoughts on that? Or do you, would you agree with that or no? Or, or? Um, I, well, a couple thoughts are, it's very difficult to write an epic poem with a large cast of characters and give enough space to each you know, that we might appreciate them adequately in the same way that the author does. Mm-hmm. But that's a little bit of a cop out because he just spent, you know, seven or eight lines talking about Ascanius's hair. <laughs> right. So he could have used those lines yeah. to develop the character of Pallas a little more and make us feel for him. Right. The second reply I would give is that the nature of family and so forth is quite different for the Romans than it is for us today. Yeah. And here's one example. Um, most adoptions that I'm aware of are um, adoptions of persons who are outside your family today. Mm-hmm. It is not uncommon to adopt persons from other countries right. uh, or even from persons in this country. Now, I know that some persons are raised by their you know, their aunts and uncles, their grandmothers and so forth, but those don't always eventuate in adoption mm-hmm. and they're not even necessarily referred to as adoption. Um, in the Roman world, the idea of adopting someone who was not a family member was extraordinarily foreign, but adopting a family member was really common. Yeah. So the famous uh, Terence um, play, the brothers, right, the Adelphoi, one brother has two sons, the other brother's childless. Well, you just take one of mine and raise him as your son. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's really, really common, and it's foreign to us. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if I had five children and my sister had none, well, here, take two of mine. They can be your kids. Right. That seems so bizarre in our understanding. It just didn't happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For the Romans, it's common. So maybe part of what's happening here is a kind of examination of the family dynamic in that it's not a family member of Aeneas, but he has taken this this young man, uh, and maybe he feels a lot more responsibility for him as a function of Roman society than we would for someone who, hmm. who was just you know, taken on for a, a day trip kind yeah. of idea. Yeah, no, I, I, I li- didn't express that necessarily no, very well, but I think you understand what I'm driving at. Yes, I think I like that a lot, actually. You know, one of the things I was thinking about was I thought, wouldn't have this worked better if um, the figure playing this role Palace, you uh, mean. Pa- pa- Palace's role would have been somebody that had been with um, Aeneas from the beginning. It's yes, a, but but I think uh, but I also thought I think it's very important for Virgil to have this this guy be a local. Right? Oh yes, right. So so it's not just another. So he couldn't have, he couldn't have come from Troy. Right, he had to be someone who was native and yes, indigenous. Exactly, I think that's very that's essential to kind of to, to the plot and to the story and the themes. Right. Okay. The other potential point we could throw in there is the nature of the relationship between Aeneas and Evander. Right. The stronger that relationship is, the more political and personal validity it has, yeah. then the more weight there is upon Aeneas to actually care for this young man. Right, right. So I, I don't know, as the story goes on, I don't know if he has a kind of affection for him in the in a sentimental sense. I just think he has such an enormous sense of duty for the yeah. young man, and that's driving him. Yeah. And that's a function of his relationship with Evander, Pallas' father. Right. 
So Jasmine, if you're listening, there's lots of of uh, oh. of, of like a parental. Of course she's right, listening. Right, right. <laughs> of course she's. But this, we, I mean, this goes right. This goes right to the yes, heart of her thesis, though, right? I, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. we would love to read that paper when she's done with it because Definitely. it would likely be quite insightful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now we turn to a, a, a part that I kind of find, find a Come bit of a, of, a, of a snoozer. No snoozing. I don't. I don't. I'm not this a big on catalog. This is the roll call of the Tuscan greats. Yes. Don't you remember our discussion about um, baseball cards? Remind me. Well, you said that you thought it was insightful and accurate, and you were going to quote use it in the future. Yeah. That baseball cards are a kind of catalog poetry. Oh, okay. Statistics. Oh, 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 oh that's right. Okay, now I'm, I'm remembering. I, I can see now it wasn't very <laughs> meaningful to you. We talk you, about so many things. You collected baseball cards as a kid. I did. I still, right? ha- I still have boxes of them. Right, right. And yeah. so, you know, here was, you know, so-and-so, Lou Smith in 1984, batted 250, right? Yeah. Who cares? Right. Well, you do because you care about baseball and its, you know, interior landscape yeah if you care about the epic you want to know who's where and what they're doing and i, I suppose i mean I, perhaps the difference is that i would read them silently to myself in my bedroom whereas rather than kind of sing them out on a you know okay. in, in a public fashion but um you've listened to that that billy joel song which one we didn't start the fire oh, i hate that song i figured you did because yeah. <laughs> any popular song you don't like no i like i like billy joel that's that's one of his worst songs ever though. really yeah it's terrible okay well I, we won't talk about okay. that except <laughs> That's a kind of catalog poetry. Just this event and that event and this event and that event yes. and this event and that event. And it's horrible. For that reason? That, that's a big part of it. Mm. The song doesn't say anything. So, I mean, I get what he's doing. He's he's um the, he's and he's speaking to the locals, right? He's he is making room for um the Etruscans, local tribes to be a part of this whole thing, right? It's it's um He's celebrating them and bringing them into the mythology. Mm-hmm. So I understand what he's doing. I just don't find it all that interesting. The Cola Wars and I can't take it anymore. <laughs> exactly right. That's good stuff. Rock and roll the Cola Wars. I can't take it. I can't take any more of your but, song, but, Bill. But that's what he's saying, right? What? I can't take it anymore. It's just it's like well, well, subtle in, commentary on catalog poetry. He's he in Billy Joel. He's he's yes. recognizing within his song that that he it's made too a much. huge mistake. <laughs> Sunk his career, but this is this is a shout out though, right? Okay. I mean, this are, there's a multiple shout outs, and but I, and and Virgil calls to the attention to the importance of this by invoking the muses. You got to invoke the muses. Read, read some of that. I'd love to. This is lines one sixty three, four, and five. Pandita nunca lacona dei contusque moete, quae manas inter rea tuskis comitetur aboris, aineian armetquerates pelagoque wahatur. Which Lombardo translates as "Now open Helicon muses and chant the roll call of the men from Tuscan shores who armed the ships and sailed with Aeneas." There you go. So we've talked about in the previous, uh, not too long ago, um, Virgil invoking particular muses right. for particular reasons. At particular points, he breaks in Calliope. At, we had at one point. Yeah, Erato. Right. Um, he does this way more than Homer ever does, but I think it has it has the um, effect of kind of breaking into the poem. And saying to the audience, "Listen, this part that follows is very important, mm. and so I need an extra, I need an extra juice from the muse extra to get boost. to get through this." Mm-hmm. Here's another analog that might appeal to you, although okay. I've learned that you'll soon forget it. <laughs> you go to a sporting event, mm-hmm. right? A basketball game or something like that. There's a lot of fanfare preceding the actual competition. True. And so and so, hailing from a small town in Indianapolis at six seven, weighing two hundred forty pounds, you know, playing point guard. Yes. All of his stats are read out. Then the person runs out on the floor. Yeah. And the crowd goes wild. Yeah. That's the buildup. That's catalog poetry. Gotcha. But what the, the, okay, again, the problem is, is if for a basketball game, those are your starting five. You're going to see them in action. So there's the you starting. You never see these guys again. Well, but they're there. Okay. Use your imagination. <laughs> right. You don't want the starting 50 or the starting 500. No. No, no. I don't want the, I don't want the bench warmers. <laughs> I, I understand that when a baseball player goes to the plate these days, mm-hmm. he has his own theme song. Yeah, it's true. Isn't that right? Yes. It's like catalog poetry. Okay. okay. I like it. All right. I like it. I like it. Okay. So you say it's a bit of a snoozer. I think so. Okay. It's just like you know, book two of the, of the Iliad. It's just, it's. It's okay. I get the point. I get the point. Well, there's also in book two of the Iliad. There's also the Thersites incident. Right. I'll, I'll go right to that because that's and, good stuff. <laughs> and the dream, 
right? The dream that is sent to Agamemnon mm-hmm. and he wants to go home. Right. And Odysseus says, we're not going home. That's Come right. on, we can't do this. Beats Thersites uh, across the head. That's and, right. right. Yeah. And then all oh, that wonderful list of all the ships and where they came from. That wonderful. You that don't like that? <laughs> it's kind of like doom scrolling you know that yes exactly. do you know what dooms you know i do it yes (laughs) full confession right you scroll through and hope you'll find something interesting right well well, you have the sickening pit in your stomach right i should be spending wasting this time right Right. i should be eating a bowl of chips and here i am doom scrolling (laughs) all right now what comes next i really like excellent this uh in in these these battle scenes can kind of kind of blend together but Mm -hmm. i thought this uh so aeneas comes he's coming with his ships and they're landing on the shore. Um, it's very cinematic. It's amphibious it's, invasion. Exactly. It reminded me of the, the first 15 minutes of Save It Private Ryan. You've, right. you've, you've, have you seen this? Film? Yes, I have. We've right. talked about it even. Have yeah. we really? Yeah. Okay. It's another thing I've forgotten. That's okay. <laughs> right. But um, that incredible opening sequence, um, which is so kind of overwhelming and claustrophobic. Right. Mm. Um, here, the same kind of thing. It's a, this this uh, amphibious landing where you know, some of it works, some of it doesn't, and it's chaos and and uh, the battle's kind of going back and forth. This is gripping stuff. Yeah, so I have a little anecdote about that. Yeah. About D-Day, but not not exactly, but related. Obviously, okay. I'm far too young to have been there. Uh, but it was 2012. It was 2012, and I'm in Athens uh, with my son, and we are down in the area of the Agora, and we are at the Stoa of Atlas. Yes. And we're touring that fabulous building uh, paid for by the Rockefellers. And we're climbing the staircase to the second floor to see the collection, and we pass uh, a man and his daughter um, in on the staircase. And he said, hey, where are you from? I said, oh, we're American. And he said, oh, I'm from France. I said, oh, that's really interesting. And you know, bracing myself, you know, because the French tend to have a fairly low view of Americans. Yes. And, and I was raised in the Midwest. I'm kind of provincial. So I was ready. He said, um, thank you so much for what you guys did at D-Day. Uh, some, really? Some 60, 60 plus years ago. Wow. I said, oh, well, you're welcome. I mean, I, <laughs> I wasn't there, but yeah. I'm I'm certainly glad it worked out that way. Wow! So that was a nice moment. Yes, it really was. Yeah. It was uh, shocking, honestly. I was, it was really, really memorable. So interesting, mm-hmm. man. Well, um, the, the boats land. The boats land, right? And those ship nymphs get involved. Remember, Sibylle had changed the ships to nymphs of ship nymphs. Ship. Uh, that's got to be a better term. <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> that's awful. Ship nymphs. These nymphs that once were ships. Boat babes. <laughs> Now you're getting in trouble. You're gonna get in trouble. Um, they're they're uh, out in full force. They're they're um, they're moving around. They dance for Aeneas. They they recognize him as their king. What? It's seriously. And they they even kind of push the ships and zoom them like uh, like matchbox cars towards the shore. Um, they're all involved. And mm. then one of the nymphs, a, a certain uh, Chemokeia, whose name means something like the wave receiver. Yeah, wave, the receiver of waves. Receiver of waves. Yeah, Kume. She fills Aeneas on what's been going on. So she tells him, Hey, listen, your your guys are in big trouble. You know, the fort's made out of cardboard, made out of popsicle sticks. You better get there in a hurry. Right. Right. And so another little kind of hat tip to Sibylle, to the great mother. Right. Which is very important for... The goddess, the Phrygian goddess. Yep. It's important mm-hmm. for Roman identity. Mm-hmm. And of course, Aeneas says a um, a little prayer, as he always does. Well, he's got to do the, the ritual. Of course. Always. He's, he's pious Aeneas. Right. So there's just this wonderful moment, which I think I've, I've seen in endless you know fantasy novels and, and action movies but i never get tired of it it's the, it's the last minute arrival right, right. and so all, all the trojans in the fort they see the ships coming and it's we're saved right and they raise a shout and um Turnus now he's he has a moment of right of it's panic it's like jean-luc picard in uh, the token novel right when he says at helm's deep uh look for me at dawn on the third day yes uh, jean-luc picard oh i'm sorry <laughs> You're talking about about uh, about Gandalf. Gandalf. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Got my British actors intentionally confused. Gotcha. Um, easy mistake to make. Right. Um, but yes, Helm's Deep was was the scene that I thought of exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. That that last minute rescue, and then Turnus he hesitates, but he doesn't hesitate for long. And I thought this was interesting. He kind of he uses what reminded me of uh, Bill Tidy's uh, strategy at Marathon. Right. Let's, let's attack them before they could even get off the ships. The year was 490. Yes. It was September 490, right? Mm-hmm. Miltiades is there, and the Persian fleet is landing on the beach, and the Athenians in full armor before breakfast run a mile 
and fall upon them as they're trying to unload. A vastly outnumbered. Right. Um, but it's one of these wonderful David and Goliath victories. Yeah, 192 casualties buried in the tumulus there that we saw. Well, it's one of my favorite things that we've done together. Is That's that, right. That that, um, that in, eternal hike to uh, to a, marathon. A bus ride to yes, marathon. Yes, so much better than this podcast. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember how many uh, Persians, but it was like 10 to 1. Yes. A huge number of Persians mm-hmm. fell. Small number of Athenians. Yeah. So it's like that. It's like that. And so Turnus says, let's let's take him out. And so um, he rushes down there, and that's where the, kind of this chaos ensues. Mm. And um, we get uh, kind of this this bloody back and forth between the Trojans and the Rutulians. Mm-hmm. Um, how about a little bit little Latin here? What does, uh, what does Turnus say there? Yes, so this is Turnus's big speech, his monologue. Quad votis optas disadest per fringere dextra in manibus marsipsiveris nunc conjugus esto. Quisque suae tectique memor nunc magna referto. Facta patrum laudesul tro acur dramas arundam, dum trepede, grdrasisque labant vestigia prima, audentis fortuna uat. And unfinished line. Unfinished line. One of a handful. Yes. That hopefully Virgil would have gone back to. And I think so. Polished up. Yes, uh, in between hair appointments. Yes. Here's <laughs> line number 284, very famous unfinished line, audentis fortuna uat, which means. Fortune helps or fortune favors the bold, the bold, yes. those who are daring, yeah. adentis. Yeah, very quotable. Sometimes Virgil is really quotable. Right? Maybe. I mean, it's it's such a has such a punch. Maybe that was intentional. You think maybe it's like uh, fortune favors the bold, and his audience is left hanging there. Right. right. Or maybe yeah. after he penned that, he said, "I don't know where to go next. Exactly. That's just too good." Just, well, I'm just, gonna, just whatever follows is going to be filler. It's, it was that be like a calamus drop? What? Well. You know, there's this mic drop idea. You just oh, you drop you the drop, mic. You just drop the calamus. The, the calamus is his reed pen. Right. right? It's a, this is not going to catch on, is it? Well, I think it, it would. It would. It doesn't have the the sonic punch, punch yeah. that a mic drop was. Mic is it, it would just be a little. It'd be a little something like that. I see. Right. <laughs> it's a monosyllable, and uh, calamus doesn't doesn't, doesn't quite it. work. Right. Mm-hmm. But the I get what you're. I get the you're idea. Going. Right. Okay. So Lombardo translates this as, "This is what you've been praying for, men." The chance to break the enemy's ranks. The war is in your hands. I mean, a literal translation is Mars himself is in your hands. Right. Remember your wives. Remember your homes and your ancestors' glory. We will engage the enemy in the surf while they're still unsure of their footing. Fortune favors the brave. Mm, so nice. That, that kind of Homeric trope of kind of a rallying speech. Right. Everybody's panicking, but then the leader steps forward and says, uh, remember this, remember that. This right. is what we got to do. Like Maximus and Gladiator. Yes. What yes. we do in life echoes in eternity. There we go. Right. There we go. Yep. Or, or Odysseus is the men are running to the ships in uh, early in the Iliad, right? Right. Shame. He's got to turn them around. Turn them around. Mm-hmm. So then there's this is followed by lots of blood and gore on the beach. Yes. And here's that that really interesting aside happens in the midst of this I mentioned okay. earlier. Is it another shampoo and hair? No, 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 no. This is this is a much vignette. This is more serious stuff okay. here. All right. Um. But he's, it's, a, it's another kind of catalog, a catalog of people who are just getting cut down in these gruesome kind of mm. ways. And um, Virgil says, Lycos was next. Cut from his dead mother's womb as a child, he was consecrated to you, Phoebus. Why did you let him escape steel as a baby, but not now? Mm. And then he just simply moves on to the next victim. Mm. But I thought that was really, I mean, again, Virgil's breaking into the poem to, to ask this very solemn kind of question. That's right. That meditates on that, you know, some people's fate that happens here. Some people that happens here. Why are we saved then? And now you're you're cursed here. What? How does it all make sense? And so very important. So question. all of that is on the umbrella of this ultimate fate that Rome will be founded. Mm-hmm. But look at all of this stuff that's really hard to understand uh, in between. Mm. Did you ever read the John Irving novel, A Prayer for Owen Meany? I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably the first really grown-up novel I've read. Is that right? By which I mean it has a lot of really grown-up themes. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. And, and I was not. I read a lot of novels as a kid, but they were they were either old novels where the grown-up themes are handled in a more Victorian fashion. Yeah. Or they were kid novels. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I liked it a lot, but you had to persevere right to the end of it. Sure. To get the payoff. Oh, and uh, and uh, also a novel with lots of themes of kind of destiny. Exactly. Right? That fate. was really my point in right. bringing it up is right. that is the theme, right? The, the notion of you cannot escape what you're destined to do. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it, so it seemed very Homeric in a sense. Yeah. That novel. But I think I find it kind of moving for Virgil to pause on, on kind oh, of yes. a, a no-namer and kind of, you know, pity. And ask this question. seeming kind of meaningless death. Mm. But he must have enjoyed a lot in between. Yes. You yes. must have had some good times exactly. in between. Had a couple of good meals in there. Come on. Right? Saw a few good movies. Right? Maybe he sat on the porch and watched the sunset. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, I don't. I'm sure, maybe he, drank, I, I'm sure he drank coffee. Probably right. had a ratio. I don't feel so bad for Likas anymore. Okay. All right. It is a very poignant question, though. Yeah. And delivered with, I would say, great sympathy by yeah. our poet. And then there are just these these wonderful slash horrible. Um, lines that are you know, straight out of those battle books of the, right. of the Iliad where these gruesome deaths. Right. Yeah. Or the kinds of things described in a Greek tragedy where you are supposed to have an emotional, eviscerating response, mm-hmm. really, to how words can affect your imagination yes. rather than some kind of portrayal on the screen right, right. or an image. Right. Do you want to read a little bit yeah, of I'll, that? Yeah, I'll read a little bit of this. And so this is Aeneas is in the, in the midst of, of fighting now. He says, and Aeneas let fly a heavy shaft that crashed through the bronze of Myon's shield and punched a hole through his corselet and chest. Myon's brother, Alcanor, came to his aid, supporting the fallen man with his right arm, which Aeneas' next spear immediately pierced. Oh. The spear kept going and completed its bloody course, leaving Alcanor to examine his own dead hand dangling by sinews. That's so disturbing. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Numitor, another brother, pulled the spear out and threw it at Aeneas, but his aim was off, and it grazed the thigh of great Akates. So the three brothers here... They're all gonna, they're all gonna be killed yes. by Aeneas and company. Yes, yes, yes. And they they die in each other's arms, basically. They, yeah. In a brutal fashion. And they see kind of their their body parts kind of dying one by one before right. they're finally offed. Yeah. Right. So those who say that the Aeneid is a celebration of the glories of war, no, that's off. That's off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a presentist, uh, a complete misunderstanding. I think so. Well, you know what happens next is. Palace arrives on the scene. Yes, but and his great Aristea. But we're going to have to wait for that. This for is going to have episode. to be in the next episode. We got to delay that. Yep. So before we get out of here, Jeff, yes. we have to thank some people and then wrap this up. Yes, we as always we thank Mishka, our wonderful engineer who puts this all together, makes us sound better than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Vincent and Ken Tamplin, these uh, brilliant musicians. Uh, that's they they provided the music that you mm-hmm. hear throughout the episode. And you know, someone said to me once when they asked me what my taste in music was. Yeah. And I said, I like anything that's high tempo and virtuosic, right? Yeah. It's got to be done really well and played really fast. Is it? Yeah. And they said, um, you know, all the classics persons I have known, that's how they are as well. Really? They like that kind of high tempo, uh, virtuosic music. Hmm. Not a lot of, I know you're the exception because you like folk and... I like lots of things. Other kinds of I stuff. I like some of the stuff you just mentioned. Yeah, I know it? you do. Yeah. But I mean, there are some weaknesses in your taste. <laughs> Um, but apparently people who like classics, I guess I'm kind of true to type. Is that, that right? That's what I've been told. Oh, that's I'm, really interesting. I'm not trying to prove it, yeah. and it may be false. It's just what I've been told. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. But those guys can play. Yes, they can. And uh, we're very grateful for sharing. They're sharing their talent, uh, their musical talent with us. Jeff, if they want to get, the listener wants to get a T-shirt, Yes. Um, what should they do? They should go to oddnauseum.com. Don't forget the V in the middle All right. there. And um, if they want to write to us, if you want a shout-out, if you got an idea, you got a complaint, you can write to Dave at Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Mm-hmm. Or they can also write to who? Jeff. Yes. Sorry. I was daydreaming. <laughs> Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Now, yep. we have a short backlog of ideas people have submitted. Mm-hmm. And people may be wondering, are they ever going to cover my idea? The answer is yes, we are. We are. We are. Got, we'll get to that. Got lots of things on the table. We will That's get right. to it. Yep. You can get a quiet, no Kent, do Kent, that nice Erasmian tag. Topathemata, mathemata, which is uh, the things that hurt. They yep. Teach us with a nice uh, black T-shirt with a red figure vase kind of uh, uh, impression on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hercules holding up the world or wrestling the Nemean lion. Yeah, that's good These stuff. are really nice, sharp T-shirts. You mm-hmm. might want to check them out. Yep. Jeff, what are we doing next week? Next week, hopefully, we're going to finish up book ten. Okay. We'll see. Again, we, we as we always have to say, we, we'll see. We'll yeah, see. Later. So next week, figure uh, finish up Aeneid book ten. That's episode one fourteen mm-hmm. and episode one fifteen. Something oh. clear out of the blue, right? What? Kylo Sereno out of a blue sky. What's coming? We're talking about Tarzan. Tarzan the ape man. I'm looking that's forward right. to this. Yes. Tarzan and tradition. That's episode one fifteen. You're not going to want to miss that. Yeah. And Jeff, I believe. That after I mention the Moss Method for Greek, yes. from neophyte to erudite, mossmethod.com, you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. Do you want to say something more about Moss? Or was no, that, that's enough. That's, a, that's enough. All right. Yeah. So uh, this comes from one of my favorite comedians of all time, the, the late, great Mitch Hedberg, who says, I hate turkeys. If you go to the grocery store, you start to get mad at turkeys. You see turkey ham, turkey bologna, turkey pastrami. Somebody just needs to tell the turkeys, man, just be yourselves. I already like you, little fella. I used to draw you. (laughs) Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.